uh, Micah, Nahum. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you now for your word. And we thank you for our sweet time of communion together as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we can come together and experience the fellowship and the unity that we share through your spirit and in your word. We pray now that um, as we have sung your praises, you would help our hearts to kneel before you in worship and to hear the um, authoritative truth of your words for us today. We pray that you would convict us of sin and that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness as you are so faithful to do. We pray that you would help us to come to you in confession and repentance and to live as the people of God that you've called us to be today. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Micah chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste." For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals, and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all in Bethlehaphra, roll yourselves in the dust, pass on your way inhabitants of Shafir in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanon do not come out, the lamentation of Bethesel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Maroth, Wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. 
Therefore, you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Exeb shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marisha. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Well, on the surface, we have a gloomy text this morning that the word of the Lord brings to us. I'm excited to bring you this text. I I think that we'll be in the New Testament for quite a while as as Pastor Jim brings Romans to us and as Hanson prepares Hebrews. So I'll be the Old Testament fire and brimstone guy. You can direct your hate mail to my email and we'll, we'll hash it out. But here in the Old Testament, in this minor prophet, we have the word of the Lord. And Um, It brings good message for us that is convicting, that is refreshing, and that is empowering for our daily Christian life. I see in Micah 1, our text for this morning, four literary functions. First of all, the text opens up with the title. This title in verse 1 serves as the title for the whole book. Um, And then uh, the first section is the announcement of the Lord's coming in judgment. Um, And after this announcement, we have Micah's reaction um, to this uh, proclamation of judgment and then a lament um, for the towns of Judah. So just in case you get lost, that's where we're going. um, And uh, now we'll dive into it. First of all, in verse 1, we have the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth. We're reminded that no matter how gloomy or dismal or dark or depressing words might be to us, um, the words that are the Lord's words are true and faithful and pure. They accomplish their ends. The words of the Lord are sweet like honey, sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb, the psalmist says, and they are for us. Um, The word of the Lord that came to Micah is not only this text of chapter 1, but it is also the entirety of the book of Micah that stands as the word of the Lord. Um, In its three major sections, we have three messages or oracles or burdens that Micah gives, um, and we're only hitting the first half of the first one today. Um, If you look at chapter 3 and chapter 6, you see also different headings that say, hear you heads of Jacob and hear what the Lord says. So Micah is really split up into three sections where hear this is a proclamation of judgment, um, but each message ends with a promise of hope and reconciliation for God's people. So the word of the Lord comes to Micah of Morsheth. We have a Micah in our congregation. Um, You may have heard Jim say before, Micah means who is like God? And incidentally, that's a question that is answered in Micah's book. Micah hails from the town of Moresheth in southern Judah. It's southwest of Judah near Gath, so that you could also describe it as Moresheth Gath later in verse 14. It's a, a small town. He was a contemporary of Isaiah and Amos, preaching during, as we're, the text tells us, during the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. 
I'm not going to give you a full historical detail of what was going on during those days. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles 27 to 32 um, or in 2 Kings 15 to 20. Um, of the three kings, Hezekiah is a king that is known for his reforms and his uh, repentance and returning to the Lord. Um, but in general, the season was one of idolatry and rebellion against the Lord and of spiritual darkness. So Micah brings the word of the Lord um, during these days, and he brings it specifically to Samaria and Jerusalem, the capital cities of the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. Micah um, describes his call to ministry for us in chapter 3, verse 8. If you can just glance your eyes over there, it's an interesting text of all the uh, Prophets, we don't have a prophet that gives a direct um, mission statement or calling like this. Um, but we have Micah saying in chapter 3, verse 8, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Not the funnest job description, but his calling of the Lord that he um, faithfully accomplished in the words of this prophecy that he delivered to Samaria and to Jerusalem. As a prophet, Micah's job is to declare the transgression of God's people, to warn them of coming judgment, and to call for their repentance. It's not a job that takes a high uh, rate of praise or appreciation for what you do. Reminds me of the Lord of the Rings when Gandalf the Grey comes into Edoras and he's not welcomed because he's recognized as a herald of woe, a bringer of warning and bad news. I think the prophets would have received the similar treatment. At the founding of Israel as a nation, God clearly laid out for the nation a constitution a, uh, a charter, and that's located in the book of Deuteronomy. Israel was to worship the one true God and to serve him only. And um, Deuteronomy makes it very clear that you have two options. You can obey the Lord your God and receive life and blessing and peace and prosperity to your crops and your fields and the rains will come on your lands, or you can reject the Lord your God and fall and worship false gods and pagan idols, and you will receive judgment and uh, the opposite of blessing. The lack of God's blessing curses as the land no longer bears fruit for you and eventually spits you out of its mouth. We see, just like Adam and Eve, Israel had the choice between good and evil, life and death. There's clear blessings for obedience, certain curses for disobedience. The warning of impending judgment that we have here would be hard to listen to. It's hard for us to listen to, it'd be hard for them to listen to. But the warning is itself a gracious act of God towards his people. In the garden, the Lord pursues the man and the woman. He says, Where are you? Um, and he knows exactly what is done, but he pursues them anyway. Here we have God's words pursuing God's people in a gracious act of warning so that they may listen and repent. This message of Micah clearly announces that Israel and Judah have transgressed God's law. 
Judgment is coming, but it also announces God's unfailing love and his forgiveness of sin and his um, plans to reconcile his people to himself. As a result, the message that we need to hear today as we dive into our study of Micah is that your sin is equally as grievous to the Lord as the sins that we'll see in this passage. And in Jesus' words, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Luke 13.3. Well, that brings us to the first real portion of this passage, the announcement of the Lord's coming and judgment, verses 2 through 7. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Here in verse 2, we have a summons, a summons to the whole earth to hear the words of the Lord. All peoples pay attention, O earth, all that is in it, let the Lord be a witness against you. We have several different um, appearances of this kind of language in scripture. Um, it's, a, it's a divine courtroom, a summons. If you remember back to when I um, gave a sermon from Psalm chapter 50, we had the same thing where the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Um, he comes in judgment and he speaks to the, his people, here, O my people, this is what I have against you. So Micah describes for us that God is summoning the earth to hear his words, and he is itself a witness against them that these words are heard and are inescapable. The Lord is our witness, and as a witness against us, we cannot escape from the truth of what the Lord, the Holy One, would say to us. Verses 3 through 4, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters pour down a steep place. Again, this kind of language mirrors that of other texts. It's a theophany or an epiphany. It's an appearance of God. As um, human writers inspired by God describe him, describe his presence, describe his appearance and his personal coming in judgment, Again, in Psalm chapter 50, we have something similar. The Lord comes. Fire is before him. Around him is a consuming fire. Um, it re reminds us of passages like the Jews would know well of, of Mount Sinai when the Lord descends upon the mountain in fire and smoke. He is holy, and we cannot approach him. When he comes, he comes with might and justice and power, and the earth melts before the Lord of hosts, the creator of heaven and earth, the Lord of life. Our sins, however small, are worthy of the judgment of this God. And this is part of the problem that Israel falls into. It's part of the problem that we fall into. You see, this picture of God and who he is, that God has the right to summon all of the earth to hear his words that cannot be undone or revoked, that God comes in his presence is one that is characterized by wrath and destruction and fire and melting and devastation. This God doesn't fit easily into the boxes we've made for him. 
We don't like this part about who God is. It's easier to say God is love. It's easier to say that God has a plan for your life. And it's easier to say that everything between you and God is okay. You don't need to worry about integrity or justice or righteousness in your life. The truth is that this God is coming to judge your sin. And that is unescapable. This proclamation to the peoples, hear, O peoples, pay attention, O earth, this goes to everybody. It's a message specifically for Samaria and for Jerusalem, but it's also a message to everyone. As God comes to judge his people, the message for the nations is you cannot escape the wrath of God if God will not spare his own people. So hear, O peoples, and O earth, pay attention to this, for the Lord is coming out of his place. He will tread upon the mountains, and the mountains will melt before him. In uh, Romans 1, verse 8, we remember, as Jim has shown us, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And that revelation of God's wrath is universal. It is inescapable. It will come. This message is is potent for us because even though we know that God emptied his wrath on Jesus on the cross, all this is for our sin. Verse 5. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. We might think, isn't this a little bit overkill, God? Do you really have to come and melt the mountains or destroy everything or bring an all-consuming wrath with you? Can we parlay or work something out or come to some sort of a negotiation? But the truth is that God, in his coming judgment and his perfection and his holiness, is perfectly just to do so for our sins. All this is for our sin. Even looking at the whole context of Scripture, as we know, of Jesus' death and resurrection for us, of his sacrifice for us on the cross, of his atonement for our sin, all of that was for your sin. It's weighty. We need to remember the weightiness of our sin. Because not only do we fall astray when we put God in a box and we think that he is not a God of wrath, but we also fall astray when we justify our sin, when it no longer becomes loathsome to us, and when we harbor secret sins that we think are okay. The message for us is that if God did not spare his people, if he did not spare his son, neither will he spare us. All of this is for the transgressions of Jacob. The rest of of verse 5 has some rhetorical questions for us. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is this, what is so bad as to cause this? Is it not Samaria? What is the transgression of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? God calls out the capitals of these two nations. They are the first to be addressed for judgment. These cities and their leadership were the centers for sin and for misleading the people. The lips of a priest are called to guard knowledge and to turn people away from evil, but instead the kings, the leaders, the capital cities of these nations are turning people towards sin and not away from it. 
Samaria specifically was a lavish town. It was known for having luxury, for having um, ivory floors and walls, for being a, a center for um, lewdness and for pagan worship, for sexual immorality. It was a lavishly celebrated sinful place. Jerusalem as well had fallen with um, its uh, northern sister into falling into sin. And as a result, God's judgment comes against these capitals specifically as God is bringing um, judgment to his people as the nations of Assyria um, and later Babylon will come and take these kings away into exile. Um, God's judgment will be devastating and thorough. Verse 6, Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. Again, this capital city that was known for its wealth, for its glory, for um, its open, declared sinfulness, God is going to come and make a heap, a place for planting vineyards. Furthermore, God is um, thorough in his judgment against the idolatry of the city, verse 7. All her carved images shall be beaten into pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the free of a prostitute they shall return. This, this disaster that the Lord brings is inescapable. We see in chapter 2, verse 3, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. God um, is bringing this judgment against Samaria specifically, um, but it's also coming for Jerusalem. We see in the second half, the lament is uh, cities that are, are predominantly around Jerusalem in southern Judah. Um, but the Lord says similar things about the capital city of Jerusalem. In 2 Kings 21.13, the Lord says, I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. The truth is that the idolatry of Israel and Judah, the wealth that they had amassed from their spiritual prostitution, all of this is going to be utterly destroyed before the Lord as he had set his purpose to remove Israel and Judah from his sight. God despises idolatry in all of its forms. We may think that we belong to the people of God. We may think that we know the truths of God. We may think that we have been magically declared from judgment because we know these truths. But God's judgment towards the idolatry of our hearts will not be forsaken just because we think we have God figured out. The truth for Israel and Judah, they were God's people, they had fallen into apathy, into spiritual darkness. They forgot the truth. They justified their sin. And they had a watered-down religion 
and they pretended to know God, to love him, they really didn't. The same things and pitfalls can happen to us today. This first section, grave as it is, brings to our attention that we do not understand the holiness of God. We consistently fail to recognize the gravity of our sin. Just like Israel and Judah, we also can become accustomed to a tame God, a God that we have dethroned, because from our perception, God lets us slide with our sin. We forget, as Jim has also mentioned from Romans 2, we forget that God's patient kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. The problem that we face is that we deceive ourselves into thinking that everything between us and God is okay when it's not. Perhaps we can begin to wonder at what's wrong when God begins to fail to meet our needs. Perhaps we'll begin to notice it when, worse yet, tragedy strikes our lives and we raise a fist against heaven and we cry, God, why would you let this happen to me? In all reality, we forget the truth of Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wickedness. In light of the darkness of our sin, when we recognize it in its fullness, how depraved our hearts are, how much we struggle um, consistently, incessantly with the idols of our hearts, we need to respond in repentance. Rightly does Isaiah respond in the throne room in Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah sees the holiness of the Lord, Isaiah responds, Woe is me, for I am lost. Some translations, undone. For I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is the humble response that we need to have towards our sin today. First of all, it's a humble recognition of God and who he reveals himself to be and not who we think that he is. We must recognize God for who he is and his holiness and his wrath against sin and the fact that there is no excuse that we can give to him to justify our sin. We cannot be good enough. We cannot negotiate enough. You cannot parlay with the Lord of hosts. We must recognize him as he reveals himself to be. Secondly, we must have an honest concession to our own consciences that our hearts are desperately sick and deceitful. And who can understand them? They have a spiritual darkness, sinful depths that we cannot fathom. Thirdly, that needs to bring us to sorrow. We need to sorrow over our sin and have a sorrow that would move us to action. 
Again, this first section, this announcement of God's coming and his glory and his might and his justice and his wrath and his judgment against the complete and utter destruction of Samaria and Jerusalem, it's a call to God to hear his words and repent. And so when God calls out our sin, he also calls us to repent. Which brings us to Micah's response. In verses 8 and 9, Micah the prophet takes a moment himself to respond to God's words that God has given. And Micah says, For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. At a glance, it could seem ridiculous to respond to sin in this way. Who, who responds to sin like an ostrich or like a jackal? But we have to recognize that Micah is writing with sincerity, with um, passion, with mourning and devastation over the sin that he sees in his own heart and in the heart of his nation. The point is, Micah takes sin seriously. He mourns over it. The effects of sin are absolutely devastating. God's wrath against it is absolutely sure and complete. It is an incurable wound that has reached the gate of your heart. And the question for us is, how will you react? How do you react when the Lord nudges your heart and prompts you of sin in your life? Do you mourn over it or do you brush it aside? For myself, it is all too easy to brush my sin aside. I can't say um, before you today that when the Lord convicts me of sin, I mourn like the ostriches, um, but I do need to mourn my sin. I do need to take time to lament it. So do we all. Lastly, in verse 10, we move to a lament, a lament for the cities of Judah. We had this pronouncement of judgment against the capital city of Israel, Samaria. It was very thorough and devastating. And now we have um, a, a very stylistic uh, lament for the cities surrounding Judah. It's a little bit difficult to understand until you realize that Micah is a very skilled wordsmith. Um, he pairs these words based on their meanings and their soundings to give a, a thorough um, and devastating lament for the outcomes of these cities that surround Judah. He uses irony um, to pict how God's wrath is going to come to each of these cities. And the point in this lament is that God's judgment against sin is not just out there, for other people. It is coming to your town. It is coming to your heart. It will directly affect you. Verse 10. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all. In Bethlehem, roll yourselves in the dust. The word Gath sounds like the word tell. It's actually the same wordplay that David uses 
um, when David laments of the death of Saul and Jonathan. 2 Samuel chapter 1, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice and the uncircumcised exult. So the same wordplay that David uses, Micah uses as he introduces these cities. Um, Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Bethleaphra, Bethleaphra means house of dust. It would be a common practice of mourning to roll in the dust and to sit in it, to sit in sackcloth and ashes. So those inhabitants of the house of dust should roll themselves in the dust for the calamity and the disaster that the Lord is bringing. Verse 11, pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. Shafir means beautiful and fair. It'd be the city beautiful, the city fair. And that's a contrast between its inhabitants, the inhabitants of beautiful, who are going to pass on their way in nakedness and in shame. Zainan is a town that means come out. And the inhabitants of Zainan do not come out, either because of a siege or because they will not or cannot come out. Um, They do not come out, and that's an irony because the name of the city means come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. Beth Ezel, um, a faraway house, uh, corresponds to standing place in this wordplay. Somehow the, the nearness of this city to Jerusalem um, as this city, Beth Ezel, is either conquered, wiped in the devastation as the armies of um, the nations come and a camp against Jerusalem. All of the little towns outside of Jerusalem are going to get destroyed in that process. And as Beth Ezel is taken away from Jerusalem, the standing place, um, some translations, the breathing room is taken away. The, the buffer uh, is taken away as the army encroaches upon Jerusalem. Verse 12, for the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good. And Maroth means bitter. The inhabitants of these cities, specifically this city, are made bitter. They're waiting anxiously for good, but there is no good coming because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Thus, all of these cities become cities of bitterness. Verse 13, harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. Lachish sounds sounds like steeds. This lament encourages the inhabitants of Lachish to harness their steeds to their chariots, not in order that they may fight, but in order that they may flee. This city is identified as the beginning of sin, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. Probably because here at Lachish, there's a military stronghold here. Also in the narrative of um, the kings, there was a time when um, Sennacherib comes down, he comes down to Lachish, and the kings reach out to try to settle things, to try to have them go away without sacking Jerusalem, 
um, because in so doing, they trust in the strength of men and of armies and not in the strength of God. And God swiftly returns to that king and, and brings judgment for that action. Perhaps here at Lachish was the beginning of where Judah, as the southern nation, began to trust in man's strength instead of in the strength that God provides for salvation. Verse 14, Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. Moresheth, in the region of Gath, sounds like the word betrothed. Just as you have a betrothed woman who you would give parting gifts to as she goes from her house to the house of her husband, um, you would give parting gifts to the city because it's leaving you. The houses of Exeb shall be a deceitful thing. Exeb literally means deception. So the houses of deception shall be a deceitful thing to you, perhaps because you rely on them for strength and they cannot provide their strength. Uh, it's a wordplay that Jeremiah uses in Jeremiah 15, like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail. Either way, the houses of Exeb cannot provide help or support. Um, it's these houses of deceitfulness will be deceitful in their benefit to the kings of Israel. Verse 15, I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Moresha. Moresha is similar to the word possess or conqueror. A conqueror or a possessor would ironically come and possess the city of conquer. And so the city would come to be inhabited as well. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Adullam is the name of the cave that David was forced to flee to and to flee from Saul. So the implication is, so will the people of Israel be forced to flee, perhaps some living in caves, in the um, devastation that comes as a result of the Lord's judgment. There are some commentators that mention that in verse 10 and verse 15, Micah begins this wordplay with the cities with references to David. David says, tell it not in Gath. David is the one that is forced to flee to Adullam. Um, perhaps the implication is that Micah knows that um, the, the, the kingdom of Judah and the Davidic kingship is coming to an end um, in devastation, in despair, um, just as uh, Saul was slain just as David had to flee. Um, the point is, the, this judgment is coming to your towns, to your neighborhoods, and you can't escape it. In fact, there is even an irony um, in God's eyes between the fact that you and your civilization, you boast of things when you create your cities and when you live in them and when you seek after idols and do not worship the one true God. God will measure out judgment to each of these cities based on their names, even based on their deeds. There's no escaping it. This God sees all, and he brings judgment perfectly, completely in justice and in righteousness. But the result is devastating to God's people. Verse 16, the lamentation ends with the truly dark and sorrowful thought to make yourselves bald, bald as the eagle, to mourn, 
because your children will go into exile. I don't know if I could possibly imagine my children suffering this kind of fate. I think we could identify with the, the feeling, with the sentiment, if we could imagine our nation being wiped out, our towns being conquered, our children being carted off to a foreign land. I think I would pull out my hair. This devastation is truly sorrowful and dark. I think it's worth our time because scripture is not shy in talking about it. I think it's worth our time to consider the devastating consequences of our sin. You see, your sin has consequences in your life. We deceive ourselves to think that our sin will be okay, that nobody will notice, that nobody will know. God knows. We deceive ourselves and to think that, you know, God will just forgive me and nothing bad will come of my sin. There are lasting consequences to sin. If we sin, there are curses of disobedience that come as a result of the brokenness of this world. Sometimes, even though God gives forgiveness, those consequences last. It's also worth considering that your sin doesn't just affect you, but affects those around you especially in your family unit, your wife, your husband, your children. Your sin will have consequences that affect even them. In Judah's case, the effects of sin cross geographical lines as really Jerusalem's destruction wreaks havoc on the towns that surround it. The consequences of sin also cross generational lines, as now as an irrevocable consequence, the lives of the children of this generation will be forever changed. In our case, the effects of sin bleed into the overall wealth, not wealth, health. They bleed into the overall health and well-being of our families. Husbands, our leadership in the family has a huge effect on our wives and on our children. If we fail to lead in righteousness and personal holiness, there's forgiveness in Christ, but it has an effect. Our children will see and hear. I know too well that my children see and hear things that I say and do that I don't realize that they say, that I say and do. They are very observant. And it distresses my heart to no end to think that I could be a reason that leads them to sin. Surely they're sinful little buggers. But I don't want to be the reason that they see what sin is because they see it in their daddy. <clears throat> With Micah 1 explained, given to us clearly, behind us, we come to the end of our text for this morning. But this is not the end of the story. It's certainly not the end of the story for Israel or for us. First of all, like I mentioned at the beginning, Micah 1 is only the first half of the first message. There's three messages in Micah, and this is only the first half of that first message. In chapter 2, whenever by the Lord's grace we come to it, we'll see that chapter 2 ends with a message of hope that even though God sends his people into exile, in chapter 2, verse 12, God will gather the remnant. He will set them together like sheep in a fold, and the Lord, the King, 
will be at their head. So we know that it's, this is not the end for Israel or for Judah. We also know, secondly, that this is not the end of the story because we, on this side of the cross, know more about God's plan of redemption than Israel and Judah did at this time. We know that Jesus Christ took on flesh to live righteously, to die sacrificially, to rise victoriously against the power of sin and death. We know that he alone is able to fully satisfy the wrath of God against our sin. We know that if we call to him, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Thirdly, this story isn't over because as the word of God, even Micah chapter 1 calls us to action today. In a proper response to Micah chapter 1, we must take to heart at least the following three applications. First of all, we need to hear. The text starts out, hear you peoples. This is God's message, God's perfect and holy word. And it is meant for us to hear. It reminds me of Jesus' words that come to us when Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Lord says to the church, to you. We need to hear, along with all peoples and along with the whole earth, that the Lord is coming to judge sin. Again, not just bad people's sin, your sin, the sin that lies at your gate that springs from the walls of your heart. And you are graciously being warned because of the Lord's grace and kindness. Hearing this message leads us to respond. What are you going to do about this? Are you just going to hear it and chuck it over your shoulder? Are you going to hear it and take it to heart? The second thing that we need to do in application of this passage is that we need to repent. We need to repent of our sin in humble surrender and faith in Jesus Christ. The word tells us that he became sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We need to believe this, and not just believe it, but act upon it in faith, a faith that Isaiah called for in Isaiah 55, verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. If you have not come to belief and repentance in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you today, do not leave this place until you come talk to me, come talk to Jim, one of our elders here, talk to a neighbor sitting next to you. We desire to preach the word of God here in this church, to preach the gospel fully, to make known to people, even though it's not a popular message, that our sin brings the judgment and wrath of God. And unless there is belief and repentance, we too, as Jesus says, will surely perish. So I beg you, come talk to us, come hear more of this good news that is in Jesus Christ and what faith in him looks like and what repentance means. For those of us who are in Christ, we also need to repent. There is repentance that is initial, that starts our Christian life, that is necessary, 
There's also repentance that is daily and continual that I would argue we need even every day. 1 John 3, 9 says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. If we were to examine our hearts with any sense of honesty and humility, we would recognize that we all keep sinning. It's not what John 3 is talking about. It's talking about an ongoing practice of unrepentant sin. And so even if you have been in this church for years, even if you have believed yourself to be a Christian, I would challenge you, do you repent over your sin? Because if you come to the place where you think that you do not sin, first of all, God's word says you're a liar and the truth is not in you. Second of all, if you do not repent of your sin, the word brings into question your salvation. And that is something I bring to you with humility and as much grace as I can muster and with sorrow. We must repent of our sin and repent of it regularly. If we do not repent of our sin regularly, we stand in danger of the judgment of God. God's word to us is good. I'm stealing my thunder from next time, but in chapter 2, verse 7, God says, Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly. These words of a hard message are for us a grace that we may hear the word of God and repent of our sin. In fact, this is even one of the means that God gives to you so that you may repent. God enables us to repent, and part of the ways that he does that is through the proclamation of his word. So, our application so far is that we need to hear, that we need to repent. Lastly, we need to proclaim. You see, if we have heard this message, if we have truly heard what God has to say about who he is and about who we are in our sinfulness, and if that message has spurred us to then repent and to find forgiveness and reconciliation in God through Jesus Christ, then we have heard the message, the message that we also must proclaim, that others may hear, that others may respond in faith and in repentance. We must mourn our sin, just like Micah does, mourn it enough to proclaim to the world the message that they need to hear about coming judgment and about life that is available in Jesus Christ. If we do not mourn and weep for the brokenness of sin as it has devastated the cities of our neighborhoods and our towns, we will not be spurred to bring to them the message of life. Who knows, Jonah says, maybe God will, will turn and relent from the devastation that he has given. But it takes a messenger. It takes someone preaching and if we preach the message of God and who he is, if we tell of his wrath and judgment against sin, if we tell of the life that is available in Jesus Christ, and if we call for a hearer to repent, the rest is up to the Lord. And that's what we're called to do, to proclaim faithfully, not perfectly, to call for a response, to leave the results up to the Lord. In closing... I would argue from Micah's call to ministry, again in chapter 3, verse 8. Again, this call to ministry is very specific to Micah. 
None of the rest of us were called specifically during this time to bring the news of sin to Samaria and Jerusalem. But in the Spirit, because of the Great Commission, I would say we all have been given this charge and this power. This empowerment is available to every Christian in gospel ministry, Micah 3.8. But as for me, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord with justice and might to declare to your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers their transgression and to the world their sin. That's the joyful privilege that we've been given in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, it can be difficult to hear messages such as this one. Indeed, the inhabitants of Samaria, of Jerusalem, of Israel and Judah, they didn't like this message. They wanted an easier to hear, to accept, to bear message of peace and love and a lack of judgment. Lord, but we recognize your word is true and it is perfect and desirable, even much finer than gold. And we desperately stand in need of you and of your word. We pray today that you would remind us of your holiness, of who you are, of your majesty, of your awesomeness, and you would help us to keep that picture with us in the private moments when we are alone, when we think that we can get away with our sin. Help us to remember your majesty, your glory, your promise that you will come in judgment to judge sin. There is no secret thing that will not be revealed. You will come in judgment. Lord, help us to see the weightiness of our sin, to truly lament it and sorrow over our sin, even the smaller sins of our thoughts, of our attitudes, the sins of our hearts. Lord, help us to mourn them and so be moved to respond in repentance and in faith over each and every sin. Lord, we glory in the joy that is set before us that in Jesus Christ we have life. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, but we must first repent. So Lord, I pray for this church that you would give the, the leaders, the people, all of us of this church tender hearts that are swift to repent of our sin. And lastly, Lord, we pray with this dire message that you would equip us through the power of your spirit with might and justice to declare the words of life that others need to hear. Give us the courage to declare sin, to declare judgment, to declare forgiveness and reconciliation in Jesus Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.